evening, everyone. If this is your first time uh, coming and joining us, um, uh, you picked a great week to be here because uh, we are starting a new letter in the scriptures tonight. Um, uh, just like every uh, church that proclaims the word of the gospel, uh, we uh, teach the scriptures. And the way that we do that here in this church is we have been going, uh, started in Genesis uh, over 15 years ago, and we've been on the same journey ever since, uh, appropriately titled The Journey. Uh, and we've been going through the scriptures. We have a few years left and only a few books left. So, so we're going uh, at a decent clip. Um, and tonight we begin a new letter uh, for us uh, called Titus, uh, which the graphic says, Titus. So, um, this letter is really, really sweet. It's written from one individual to another individual. A lot of the letters in the New Testament are written from an individual to a church, a group of people or churches covering a, 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 a swath of land. And uh, this one in particular is from one individual, a guy that is known as uh, the Apostle Paul. And he is writing this to a guy that he had been mentoring for years named Titus. Now, if, uh, if you'd like to oh, go ahead and open up your Bible, we're in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, which makes sense because we're starting the letter tonight. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bible there. And while you're opening up your Bible, let me tell you about one of my favorite Disney movies of all time. It's Hercules. Okay? Anybody? Like, does that crack the top five for a few people? I hope so. It, I think it's top five worthy. Okay? Um, now, there are a few reasons in particular why it's definitely in my top five. First, I was six years old when the film was released, which meant I was the target audience for my age group at the time that it was released. Not only for the movie itself, but also for the Happy Meal toys uh, that came along with it. Um, I think we have an image of the Happy Meal toys. Guys, these were the Happy Meal toys, and that was McDonald's brilliant marketing back in the day. All right, it's a little bit hard to see. You can Google it yourself, but... What was so cool about this is that every one of the characters came with a second character. Like, that's a great value on your Happy Meal, right? Uh, I was so excited. I remember being at this one McDonald's after seeing the movie with my Happy Meal, and I had, I got um, the one with Zeus and I forget that Titan's name, but the, the rock Titan that's behind him. Like, I got that one. I was like, this is so cool. So first awesome Happy Meal toys, which are a great thing. Um, top two, Tarzan Happy Meal toys were my second favorite. That one was awesome. Love those. Second reason, Pegasus was so cute when he was a baby. And I loved cute things when I was a little kid. I still do. And so when I saw this in the movie, look, oh, isn't that so cute? And if this just inspires you to go hold on to something cute, they still sell Baby Pegasus at World of Disney. You know, you can go get one. It's like has a little blankie on him. It's so cute. Um, the third reason, the music is so good, right? Like so good. Uh, to this day, if I am listening to I Can Go The Distance, I am faster and stronger. It is a scientific fact. I feel like I'm like this. Right? Like, is that you when you're like, you're like, I can call, like, it doesn't matter if your thing is trivia on Disney Cruises. If that song is playing, you know, you can do better at whatever it is. Um, so good. So all that to say, Hercules is a great movie. That's the end of the message. Now, all right. Now, oh yeah, that's me. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Now, 
Disney is known for softening the edges around plastic children's stories, right? Uh, when they retell them. Uh, think Pinocchio. Read the Italian version of Pinocchio. Stuff is kind of dark. But um, the edits that they made to Hercules were by far the greatest changes that I have found from the original source material. Oh, I'm sorry. Frozen is completely different than Hans Christian Andersen's story. So that one maybe is bigger jump. But outside of Frozen, I would have always said Hercules. Now, the reason for that is that in Greek, because one, the story of Hercules is not a kid's story. It's Greek mythology. And Greek myths were crazy. Now, in Greek mythology, the gods were not noble protectors like Zeus was in the movie. Fair? Okay. Uh, Not kind-hearted watchers like Hera in the movie or self-sacrificial champions like Hercules in the movie. See, in the Greek myths, the gods played games with humanity in all of creation. All of humanity were just play toys, pawns in the life that they were telling, what they were doing to get the worship they desired, to have the sacrifices for them. And if you didn't do the things they wanted you to do, you would be punished. I mean, even this story of Hercules that you'll find in the Greek mythology, at least the most common version, is not the same story as Disney. Hercules is a demigod, uh, but he, he didn't have pain and panic come and take him off and, um, and uh, have him drink a bottle of really bad stuff. And then he beats them up as snakes. And then a wonderful family adopts them into their family. And, it, and, it, and it's great. That is not the story of Hercules in the Greek mythology. Instead, it started with Zeus, who is in fact, in both stories, Hercules' dad, but Zeus was not a noble hero. He was the most deceptive of all the gods in the Greek myths. Uh, he would normally play tricks on humans. And he would, uh, one of his most frequent tricks that he did to Hercules' mother, who was a human, was he took on and changed his form so that he matched the form of the woman's husband. They conceived a baby, and that baby was Hercules a little bit different than the Disney version, fair? Now, we can go down the rabbit hole further and the story just gets weirder and weirder and it does not lead to, I can go the distance, okay? Now, these types of deceptions were normal in the Greek mythology. And so often this, specifically with Zeus, was so often the case that it was, it's noted in history that real Greek women um, were always afraid when they had children if the child was actually their husband's or if a God had played a trick on them. Isn't that scary? Can you imagine living in a real culture where that's really what you think your gods are up to? That would be terrifying. And that was just, that's just one example. But like in a thousand ways, their gods are cruel. So would you be suspicious of gods if you were them? Right? But you're helpless because they're the gods, you're not. So kind of got to do what you got to do. Now, this reminds me in our day and age when I think about people who are like the gods, who uh, play games with humans, who deceive and manipulate, uh, have ulterior motives to kind of get their way in people's lives. I think of that and it kind of reminds me of like Zeus and all these other gods who did awful things. Um, in fact, I've, uh, over time and seeing in my own life and in the story of different leaders I have followed in different spaces of life to be suspicious of, of leaders who come across as if they are perfect because it sounds a lot like Zeus to me and not 
the Disney one, but the deceiving one. Now, when you look at the, our world around us, there is a ton of suspicion towards leaders in a, in a multitude of areas. And, and there's a lot of reason for that, right? Maybe you've experienced that with a boss in your workplace or a coordinator in your workplace or, um, or a church that you used to be a part of or a political party that you're afraid of or whatever. Like you see it and you're like, oh, you're playing games here, right? Isn't that like typically when we're considering Washington, D.C.? It's like we look and we're like, they're all just playing games and we're all the pawns in this one. Kind of feels like the gods and it's kind of scary. And so, and then, and then you just inundate it with um, stories and movies and podcasts and rise and fall narratives and, and all this stuff. And it just looks like those who have authority and power and position and influence are going to always use it for bad. Their secret purposes are not for good. They're for their own wealth, power, and popularity. So we have good reason to be suspicious, right? I mean, just look at the, very, uh, the, the various realms of our society. And it's like, yeah, these individuals are playing games with people's lives and livelihoods. And now I, I realize that, that that can be in all of our hearts, but what do we do with that? Is that how to live? Is that a good and healthy way to live? Now let's take it one step further. Let's, let's zoom out just a little bit further, not at humans, but at God. How do we view God? Do you view God like the Greek myths and their gods? That God is, he, he's not actually for you. He's for you to the extent that you're doing all the things he wants you to do. And then, but in reality, he's just after things for his own way. Does the God of the Bible play games as well? Does he hold ulterior motives that are not for our good, but for our own selfish ends? Can we trust God not to play games with us? And so to answer this question, as we begin the letter to Titus this evening, we're going to look at the backdrop of this story, specifically the location that's being written to. So the, the, the location is the island of Crete. Now, the island of Crete is set in the Mediterranean Sea. And in Greek mythology, it holds specific importance with a connection to Zeus. Zeus's father, Kronos, was in the habit of eating his children. Not great father instincts, right? But he would eat his children after they were born so that they could never overthrow him. So he would, um, his, uh, his wife would conceive a child and then he would gobble them up and they would live and they were still alive in his belly. It's a whole thing. Um, but he didn't want them to overthrow him. He didn't want his power challenged. So his mother got sick of, uh, Zeus's mother got sick of this. And so she went to the island of Crete when she was about to give birth to Zeus and went into a cave in Crete and gave birth to Zeus there and then had him raised in secret there. But she took instead uh, the swaddle and filled it with rocks and took it to Kronos and handed it to him. And he quickly gobbled up the rocks and thought he ate his son. Zeus grew up and eventually overthrew his dad through deceptive means. And so that's the history of their gods. Now the Cretans were devoted to this God. They, they saw some commonality. Like they're like, Zeus, I mean, Zeus was a big deal in all the Greco-Roman world. Um, but specifically for the Cretans, like they're, that's the hometown of Zeus. So they spelled a certain connection to him. And so they, they, they devoted themselves to Zeus, they, the one who was born in deception and who grow up to be a deceiver who played games with humanity to suit his own purposes. Now I share this because on Crete, this was their image of divinity. 
when they had a vision of what the gods would like, this was it. There was no other way. Gods were deceptive, power hungry, selfish, dishonest. So hundreds of years go by of Zeus worship. When, when about 50 AD, it's likely that Paul arrived on Crete after his first imprisonment in Rome. And along with him is a, is a younger man named Titus. And together they go and they begin to plant a new church, bringing the gospel of Jesus to these people. And they begin to respond to the news of the gospel and the island is slowly changing. Now, Crete was a very strategic location. It was set, it's set in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And it was at that time, a largely transient culture because all it was between so many different nation states. It was at this point in the story, a Roman colony passed over from the Greeks and People would go there, transport goods and make exchanges there. All this stuff, uh, people, goods, even ideas were brought in, sold or shared and then taken to another destination. Uh, I think of it a lot like Walt Disney World, you know, where cast members come here from all around the world, right? And we all come with our different experiences and influences. And then we begin to influence one another and the culture around us influences us in good and bad ways. And, and then eventually, whether we're for six months or five years or longer, we might leave and we will take with us things that we learned here. It's a transient culture. And so in Crete, it was strategic for this church to be planted here. And after some time, the church began to grow and Paul left, leaving Titus. He leaves Titus there to shepherd the church into the future as their pastor. And he would eventually write to Titus a letter that begins like this. Titus chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life with which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifest in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you were with us some time ago, what you're going to notice, if you were with us when we went through first Timothy a a time ago, there's going to be some uh, very similar wordings, phrases, and concepts that are covered in both letters. Which makes sense because both letters were words of shepherding guidance from Paul to two of his trusted disciples. One was to Timothy and the other to Titus. Both of them were, were planted at these churches to go and shepherd them. And so Paul writes through both of them, letters of encouragement, and he's covering some of the same things because some of the th- same issues are arising in both churches. And so because there's going to be similarities between these two letters, and if you want to go back, it's on the podcast. Uh, you, if you want to go listen to First Timothy. But what you'll notice is that our, you might remember that our graphic from First Timothy is very similar to this one for Titus, represented with five different pillars. But we changed the middle one on um, this time to reflect a major theme that Paul's going to focus in in this. What we're going to see is the heart of a shepherd throughout this letter. So you see the the shepherd's crooks with the heart. Because what this letter is at its core is a shepherding letter that's being written from a heart of deep love for Jesus and the 
person he's writing it to and the church that's supposed to be shepherded by its contents. Now, why would any of this matter? Because the Cretans, first and foremost, only knew the gods to be deceivers, playing games on their own ulterior motives. And so this seeped into every part of the Cretans culture. And in a few weeks, we're going to actually explore a, a quote that, that Paul is going to be citing from a, 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 Cre- a Cretan poet centuries before, where he writes this. He says, even one of your own prophets says this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Like, nice quote, Paul. But What he's using it for is he's saying, even in Crete, they know this to be true about themselves. And what's true about themselves? That Cretans are just like their gods. That's Zeus. Liar, evil beast, lazy glutton. Like that's literally what the gods would do on Mount Olympus, according to their myths, is that the gods would sit up being, uh, eating the best of food, drinking the best of wine, having all the worship lathered on them, and they would do nothing for people unless they were satisfied. And so then this new God arrives in the form of Jesus being proclaimed. What makes the God of the Bible any different? What would it look like if people were like him? And so Paul begins to answer that immediately in verse one. He says, I, Paul, I'm a servant of God. Uh, specifically in, uh, in Greek, it is the word bondservant or slave. I am a slave of Yahweh. He's saying, I'm not prestigious. I'm not a big deal. I am not special. I am not cool. I am simply one who is attached to my master. I'm his. And where he calls me, I go. And what he says about me, I, I am. He gets to call the shots, not me. And so then he says, what does that look like? I'm an apostle of Jesus. Now an apostle in Greek is, a, is literally a sent one. At this point in time, the word apostle specifically uh, hearkened to one type of individual. These were the, the leaders in the early church. They were church planters who would go off into the crazy world and go and plant new Jesus communities all over. But they were specifically those who had experienced the risen Jesus and were now sent with a special anointing to go proclaim the gospel. Now, at that point though, all right, you're called. Couldn't you be doing that for selfish gain? Fair, right? Think of how many televangelists uh, abuse the name of Jesus to play games of wealth and power and and fame, right? I mean, people exploit the name of Jesus. You can can dress it up however you want, but, but what are you in for? And so Paul explains why he has this calling, why this calling matters. And he says it in three ways. He says, first, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So God knows all those who are going to respond to the truth of the gospel, hence the phrase God's elect, but neither you, I, or Paul knows who ultimately that's gonna be. And so if you actually look at the ministry of Paul, he acted as if every moment was a divine appointment. He lived with such purpose and intentionality. Every person that he experienced, interacted with, he just believed it wasn't a coincidence he was there with them. So Paul labors as if everybody matters because they do. As if everyone might return to, uh, might turn to God because they might. See, this is Paul's call to shepherd. 
And then he says, for the sake of their knowledge of the truth and hope in eternal life. See, Paul doesn't just want them to have blind faith, ignorant faith, just don't question me kind of faith. He wants to build them up in the knowledge of the truth and the hope in eternal life. See, Paul labors so hard as a shepherd because he wants them to be discipled, not into pat answers, but into genuine knowledge of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in, in Greek, this word knowledge is used here isn't just intellectual understanding. It's not just perception level. The actual meaning of it is at intimate knowing at the heart level. That it's a relational phrase. That you would abide with Jesus in such deep intimacy that you would know him, not just know about him. And so Paul shepherds as he disciples his church into this knowledge and the hope that comes in eternal life, being with Jesus forever. And then third, to shepherd the church towards holistic, godly living. See, out of that faith that leads to knowledge and hope, Paul doesn't want the church to just be puffed up and arrogant, going, man, we're so much better than those awful cretins, those lazy gluttons and evil beasts and liars. Like, like they're bad, we're good. No, he wants them to be transformed by the renewing of their minds, not into perfect lives, but lives that are impacted by the faith that they profess and what they say that their hearts truly believe, that the faith, knowledge, and hope of Jesus, which transforms the inner life of man, transforms the outer life. That in thought, word, and action, everything is being transformed in a believer's life by Jesus. See, this is Paul's shepherding calling and his shepherding heart. But again, I mean, that's all good words. But there are, there are people who claim to be followers of Jesus, claim to lead in his movement. And that's not what they look like. They're, they're religious exploiters who might use this exact same language as Christianese to cover up a bunch of really bad stuff. Fair? to cover up the games that they've been playing, leaving a pile of dead bodies behind them. So how do we know that Paul isn't that? Well, one, because before Jesus says exactly what he was. Like read his story. His life was a lot better in an earthly sense pre-Jesus. He had fame. He had intelligence that everyone revered and respected. He was a Jew of Jews. He was the guy that everyone went to. He had influence and he was a given the highest honor of being a persecutor of this crazy sect of Judaism that was following after this dead rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus. He was a persecutor of Christians. That is until he met Jesus. And then nothing would ever be the same again. Paul would lose his influence, his safety and his control. And he would count it all as nothing. He lost nothing in comparison to the great knowledge that he had now in the faith, knowledge, and hope that he had gained in Jesus. It was, all, it was all worthless in comparison to that. And so he suffered greatly for the church. He shepherded at the cost of his own safety, comfort, and eventually a few years later from this, his own life. Now sidebar, I know that in this room, there are individuals who, like me, work for a church or a parachurch ministry. Um, and, and now this really applies to every one of us as well, because each of us 
has a level of influence in the lives of others, in your workplace, uh, in your apartment, with your family, with your friends, in the church where you serve, in ministries you're a part of, in places you volunteer. We all have some level of influence. So let this question be an evaluation point for you. This question was a lot for me this week to perceive. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Why do you work where you work? Why do you serve where you serve? Why are you here? Why do you do what you do? Check your heart. Is it because you like the power, the control, the attention, or the perks that come along with the position of influence? Now, the reality is you're a human being. So the answer is probably at some level, yeah, some of those. I know it's in my heart. But this has been my heart check this week as I've been going through this passage. It's been wrecking me. Like, why do I do the things that I do? Because for, for Paul, it was because he wanted to live as a bondservant of Jesus. Because he was his. He's not his own. That's the why. To become more like him. Not to live as a leader. Not to live as one who just has influence. Not as an exploiter of people. Not as just some, I want to fulfill this longing within me. And that, and I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that thing. Instead, it's out of a heart to serve this one, this God that he goes into in verse, uh, continue on verse two into verse three, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. So now Paul focuses not on himself and his calling, but on God. What's the source of this shepherding calling? It's not because Paul's worthy, not because he's awesome, but because he's called. And because he's called by this God that he's describing here. Not because he has shown himself faithful, but because God has shown himself faithful. Look how he describes him. What's the word that he uses? He said, God who never lies. He doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. Now, you might take that for granted, or maybe you're like, no, I actually think God does lie. Well, now that's, we can discuss that. But the Cretans only knew gods who lied. Can you imagine that? Like that's your only experience is God's lie. See, the Greek and Roman gods were just like, were just like you turn up the volume infinity on the brokenness and human sinfulness. All of their broken patterns are just played out in a cosmic scale. But Paul says that God does not lie. Now, do you struggle with doubt about if God can be trusted? And if that is you, that, now those are fair questions to explore. And our desire is to be a safe community to process those questions in. But see, Paul explains here that we can trust God. We can trust that God never lies and that he always delivers on his promises for one simple fact, because he never lies, because he has proven himself to be trustworthy time and time and time again. Remember Zeus, liar, con artist, power hungry idol. I mean, imagine if we worshiped a God with those kind of stories, would you? <laughs> It'd be scary. If you believe that he's going to throw down some lightning bolts any minute, or he's going to um, corrupt your harvest, or he could kill your child, like, then I guess you would. 
But what Paul says is our God never lies. And he doesn't lie even when the truth is hard to hear. God never lies. Now, this isn't a judgment on any other any other parenting technique that isn't described in what I'm about to say. Um, but I've always respected parents who uh, refuse to lie to their children. And here's what I mean by that. Um, uh, imagine that uh, there's a, a, a parent and a child and done with dinner, it's time to start getting ready for bed. And the child says, I want chocolate milk. What do you say? Well, the parent, there's a, the type of parent that might be quick to go, Quick, close the door. There's chocolate milk. In it. No, no chocolate milk, honey. I'm so sorry. Like we're all out. Sorry. Now that's an option. Um, but instead, I've always respected the parent that says, um, now we do have chocolate milk in the fridge, but it's getting really close to bedtime. Uh, it's too much sugar. Uh, I'd love to get you a glass with lunch tomorrow, whatever. Um, and uh, and let, let's head to bed now. I don't know how every other child reacts to that response, but my child so far reacts to that response not not super well yet. But that's what Allie and I, and we are so far from perfect parents. I promise Allie will attest to that. We're not perfect parents, but we have tried to live this out in our family rhythms. Um, Does the hard truth sometimes make you feel like you're the enemy to your kids? Yeah, yeah, it does. But our hope, is that if a parent can be trusted to deliver hard truths when they're required, then hopefully a child learns that they can be trusted, the same parent can be trusted when they tell sweet truths as well. Because if, if I as a parent always just tells my, tell my kids what they want to hear, what's going to be the easiest thing for them to hear, then, then, then when I tell them things that just seem like empty flattery, they might accept it just as empty flattery. I want my kids to know truth. And to know what, it, what I'm saying to them is truth. To not have to question that I'm lying to them over these things. Again, not a judgment over any other parenting technique. But what I am saying is that our God never lies. There are harder parts of the scriptures, for sure, right? They're difficult to grapple with. Like, God, I think I would kind of cut that out of my story if I were you, you know? But our God doesn't lie. He doesn't pretend. He doesn't hide. He doesn't play games. Our God never lies. And so Paul explains, because we know that he never lies, because we can look at the scriptures and we know that God doesn't try to cover up things that are hard for us to understand. We can trust that when he delivers on things like his promises of salvation, when he tells us our new identity that we discover in Christ, when he tells us who we truly are, that we are beloved, uniquely loved children of God who've been adopted in his forever family, we don't have to question it because our God never lies. Our God never lies. Now, I don't want to assume anything about all of you, except I am going to assume that you probably lie sometimes. Me too. And so when you're like, I don't know who I am. I'm struggling at knowing if I'm actually loved. Well, you can trust that between your understanding of who you are and God's understanding of who you are, only one of you doesn't lie. And it's not God. So we can trust that we are his. We can trust that we belong. We can trust in our new identity because our God never lies. He delivers on his promise 100% of the time. And so when he says that this is the stuff I'm proclaimed, that I've been called to preach, our God never lies. He delivers on his promises. 
And so you see this letter is indeed about the shepherd's heart. It's a letter written by a shepherd named Paul to a shepherd named Titus who is called to shepherd this entire church in Crete. But not by playing games, not by hiding, not by um, some bait and switch religious techniques, but faithfully serving as servants of God, knowing, caring for, feeding, and leading this church as shepherds. And you see this when Paul writes and finishes the letter this way, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You see, even at like this, like these, like we're in the intro, guys. And, and so much, you see his love, Paul's love for Titus to go and love this church well. His spiritual son has been sent. But see, this shepherd's heart, it would be a mistake to think that what we're talking about is Paul or Titus, the shepherd's heart. Just as the Cretans were known as liars and they had learned how to be liars by, by mirroring the liars who were their gods. Paul and Titus were simply trying to mirror Jesus to be like the one who has shepherded them, the one who is the good shepherd. And so anything that you ever experience from a shepherd, an elder, a pastor in a local church, if there's any way I ever shepherd you well, that has nothing to do with me. It is all about God. It is all about Jesus, who is the true shepherd. I am simply an under shepherd, just like Paul and Titus. And see, these Cretans, these Cretans needed to know that they were loved by the God of the universe, not these false gods who they had to be afraid of, who could do wicked and awful things to humanity left and right. What they need to know is they are loved by the actual God who created them. And so if you struggle with this stuff, how do I know? How can I trust? Know that one, God is okay with wrestling. In fact, you can come to faith in Jesus and still be wrestling. Isn't that crazy? You, you can still not have it figured out because that would make you a Christian. <laughs> you are in a room of people who do not have it all figured out. There are mysteries in the scriptures that we will not discover on this side of eternity. And there is beautiful truths that we discover and we hold on to. And we trust that our God never lies. And sometimes we even doubt that. And when we do, he's holding on to us. See, we can trust that God doesn't lie because the ultimate example is Jesus. The promised Messiah, centuries before he would come, would come and, and, and God would not even, even hesitate to send his own son to his own death so that we could live. This is the beauty of the gospel that is for you and me and us for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Do you ever feel maybe right now you're here and, and you don't know where you stand with Jesus. You don't know how you feel about this whole Bible thing. But if you feel something in you right now calling you to turn to God tonight, uh, I wanted to just throw out an invitation. After I'm off the stage and we sing our last song in worship, I'm going to be standing over by the back tables. And if that's you and you just want to have a conversation, no pressure, no games, just chat. I would love to have that conversation with you. Because I believe that there is a good God worthy of trust who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Now tonight, we are going to 
spend some time meditating on the scriptures together. And specifically, I picked out tonight uh, a letter where we really get to um, a passage in scripture that you might be familiar with, uh, Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, we get this beautiful image of, of a really good shepherd. And so what I want you to see in it, what I want you to really focus your mind and your heart in on this passage is the heart of a shepherd. What's the heart of a shepherd like? Because as we journey in through this book, there's going to be some hard stuff we're going to cover. But what's the motivation of that shepherd? And so that's what we're going to do right now. And so I want to invite you into, if you've never meditated on scripture before, all that means is that we're just going to take time to close our eyes Um, Put our body in an open posture, maybe putting your hands in front of you, open on your lap, whatever you'd like to do in that. If you have space, you can feel free to lay down. Um, Just don't lay on your neighbor. Um, And what I would love for you to do is um, just process these words. This isn't a version of meditation where you're emptying yourself. It's a version of meditation where you're filling yourself up with what is true, right, and good. And so would you close your eyes, put yourself into a comfortable position as I read over this passage twice. Would you take a deep breath in? Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. breath in. What is the vision you are receiving of who the shepherd is?
What is this shepherd's character being described? Picture that shepherd as we read again. Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is my shepherd. I shall not want. Imagine if we lived a life of not want, of knowing whose we are. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He even lies, leads me beside still waters. And he restores my soul. Is that you tonight? Do you need your soul restored by your good shepherd? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Just as centuries later, Paul would write to Titus, his calling is to shepherd the people into a godly life. He does this. He leads us into this path of righteousness, of godly living where our inner life of abiding with Jesus transforms even our actions for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. How? How, you say? How do we fear no evil? For you, my God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your protective tools are a comfort to my weary soul. You, eternal one, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You even anoint my head with oil so much so that my cup overflows. You are called and chosen. You are his. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh, the one without beginning or end, the God who never lies, the God whose home is secure and safe, filled with love and kindness. That house of that God I shall dwell in forever. Would you pray with me?
Father, how sweet it is that we get to come to you, that we have your words, that we can meditate on them and have our hearts and our minds transformed by them. God, you are good and kind and precious. Lord, would you do a work even right now in our hearts and our unbelief meet us and our doubts meet us. When, when the circumstances of our past or our present make us, it hard for us to trust in you, to trust that you never lie. Be with us because you are a good shepherd. Because you are a shepherd. Somehow we shall not want. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.